0: Is, that, is it pronounced Brandeis or Brandis? It's about staff chat and Kylie Jenner. Oh
1: my god! Dude, hold on. This is like very interesting. <laughs> I
0: let <laughs> that speak for itself.
1: Welcome back to episode seven of the Maroon Weekly. We're going into ninth week as always. I'm Austin. And I'm Miles. Let's get right into the news. The university signaled its support for high school students' right to protest in wake of the Parkland shooting. Across the country, high school students have partaken in walkout demonstrations for changes to gun laws in response to the Parkland shooting. Several of the university's peer institutions have told their applicants that any suspensions received due to demonstrations would not be held against them. The university issued a statement which has still left uncertainty about whether or not suspensions will be held against applicants. The statement reads, as many high school students express their heartfelt opposition to violence, we reaffirm the University of Chicago's long-standing principles of free expression and supporting students making their voices heard on this and several other issues of national importance. Also, University of Chicago students participated in a march downtown last Sunday for gun reform. I'm Marley Rosario. I'm with Gather Activism. And I'm here because I'm tired. I'm a 19 year old student and I'm tired. Okay. My name is Kate Quinn. (laughs) (laughs) The UChicago women's basketball team clinched a spot in the NCAA Division III playoff tournament earlier this month with a victory over Brandeis University. The team has continued its win streak with three more home wins against Carnegie Mellon, Case Western Reserve, and Wash U, bringing their total record to 23-2. and UChicago's position in the Division III bracket will be announced on Monday at 1.30 p.m.
2: The
0: U.S. Supreme Court sided this week with the Oriental Institute in a case regarding damages owed to the families of victims of terrorist attacks. The ruling prevents U.S. survivors of a 1997 terrorist attack from using artifacts housed at the OI as a means of compensation from Iran after the country refused to pay the survivors $71.5 million in damages. The artifacts in question are a set of 30,000 clay tablets which were loaned by Iran to the Oriental Institute 80 years ago.
3: I'm sitting with uh, Catherine Vega, why precisely were the plaintiffs looking to reappropriate um, Persian artifacts from the Oriental Institute? So, in 1997, this group of Americans or or some of their um, close relatives had been injured in a deadly terrorist attack in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the terrorist attack was carried out by Hamas, but the group alleged that Iran had funded uh, Hamas, and so thus was partially responsible for their injuries and the damages uh, occurring after the attack. So, the group, led by plaintiff Jenny Rubin, saw damages in the U.S. court, and they were awarded $71.5 mm-hmm. million. However, of course, when Iran ignored the ruling, they sought to seek their compensation in a different way. So, using um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976, mm-hmm. the plaintiffs sought to seek out those damages from museums that were carrying ancient Persian artifacts, so that they could seize those artifacts and, I guess, auction them off to use as compensation against Iran. So, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is this sort of, like, very broad act that legislates how foreign assets or foreign um, goods in the United States are handled, right? Right. So, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act basically provided a lot of of the procedures that are used for bringing a lawsuit against a foreign sovereign or its, like, agencies. Mm-hmm. Um. So, it applied in this case in that they were suing the Republic of Iran. Um, and so the act establishes these procedures that must be followed, um, even and including um, for attaching property for international debt recovery purposes. So yeah. I think that that's how it kind of fit into the case. Under the act, in general, foreign governments have immunity for litigation, but there is some... Um, There is some exception for Mm -hmm. state-sponsored terrorism. I see. And so the plaintiffs were seeking to recuperate the damages because they believed that Iran had, you know, done the state-sponsored terrorism, and so they felt that they were entitled to an exception under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities um, Act. But um, the Supreme Court did not agree, and neither did the lower court. In the provision for the state-sponsored terrorism exception, it very clearly stipulated what could and couldn't be mm-hmm. you know, used for that, and these artifacts did not qualify because, basically, the artifacts were not involved at all in the commercial purposes mm-hmm. of the state-sponsored terrorism or they weren't really related on the government. Actually, the artifacts had been on loan to the OI for decades, and so yeah. they were kind of really irrelevant um, to the case. In the 1930s, University of Chicago archaeologists discovered these clay tablets, mm-hmm. um, known as the Persepolis Collection, while they were doing an excavation in Iran. Um, so these Persian tablets were um, incredibly important in terms of ar- in, in terms of an archaeological discovery, yeah. and so they were loaned to the Oriental Institute in the 30s. And I guess the Oriental Institute has been slowly returning them over time, but it's still in possession of a great deal of them. Yeah. And so um, in a 2006 Washington Post article, actually, the then director of the Oriental Institute, Jill Stein, said uh, to the reporter of the Washington That's Post. G-I-L, not J-I-L-L. Right? Yes, yes. G- Okay. G-I-L, Jill Stein, uh-huh. um, said... Something along the lines of, like, this is absolutely absurd. It would be as if the U.S. loaned the Liberty Bell to Russia. Right, And then right. Russia auctioned it off. Or Russia allowed the Liberty Bell to be auctioned off in some way. So yeah. basically it was just that these were historical artifacts that were on loan from the Iranian government slowly in the process of being returned. And granted, I don't know how... Uh, intentional that like they were being yeah. with that process of returning them, but in theory they were on loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but this would have kind of, dis- if the lawsuit had been dis- successful, I think that the artifacts would have been dispersed who knows where. I think that Supreme Court cases are always really important for the precedent they keep, and it's very um, up for debate among scholars whether or not precedent actually matters <laughs> yeah. in Supreme Court decisions, but in theory precedent is really important. So I think especially with this um more like conventional reading of the Fo- Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the Supreme Court did set some kind of precedent that's worthwhile to know about for any future people who are trying to sue whatever country for whatever artifacts in whatever museum.
0: In a visit to the university on Thursday, United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said that she, quote, didn't appreciate that the U.N. General Assembly voted to condemn the U.S.'s decision to move its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Haley also answered questions from the Institute of Politics' David Axelrod regarding the Syrian refugee crisis, North Korea, and the recent school shooting in Parkland, Florida.
4: My name is Lucia Gang, and I'm a first-year news reporter with the Maroon. And this week I covered Nikki Haley speaking at International House as an event um, sponsored by the IOP. And it was the first time that she spoke at a college campus uh, since she's assumed the role of UN
5: ambassador. I want to speak with you about the United Nations and the approach we are now taking toward it.
4: The event was completely sold out. I had a friend who, submitted a question that eventually got asked and he was turned away at the door because the event was like overbooked. Was it mostly students who were there? I think there was a good mix of students and people from the community that I saw there. Hmm. So she opened the event with maybe um, 20 minutes of remarks and then um, the event moved into a Q&A se- session with um, her and David Axelrod who is the director of the IOP. And were all the questions screened before they were asked or did some students get to just come up to the microphone and ask questions? All of these questions were screened and they were um, selected from student questions, so Axelrod chose them himself. Can you tell us what some of those questions were? Yeah, so one of them um, in particular that stood out to me was how Haley intended the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations to move forward
5: the Israeli-Palestinian conflict.
4: And her answer to that was basically, it's not for us as the U.S. to decide. It's whatever the Israelis and Palestinians decide for themselves.
5: Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have been the negotiators with both sides. They are coming up with a plan. The plan won't be loved by either side, and it won't be hated by either side, but it's a template to start talking.
0: When are we going to see that plan?
5: I think they're finishing it up. I mean, I, they're still going back and forth. But the way they've come up with that plan is by listening to Palestinians and listening to Israelis. She mentioned briefly
4: um, of a Mideast plan in passing. And Axelrod really took that opportunity to ask her, when are we going to see that plan? Like, when is it going to be finished? And I think she, she responded, um, I think they're finishing it up. and tried to sort of steer away from that a little. I think they're finishing it up, so kind of distancing yeah. it from herself a little bit. Definitely. I think that one of the questions that either Axelrod or a student question that was asked was, what is the possibility of war with North Korea? Which is a really big question and big possibility, but Haley's response to that was the responsibility of war basically lies with North Korea. It lies with their actions and her condition for not for no war with North Korea was basically that North Korea is to surrender anything related to its nuclear program.
5: So our focus really with North Korea was this has been 25 years in the making where we have seen North Korea build up their nuclear systems, we tell them, the international community tells them to stop, they ask for money, the international community has given them money, and then they go back at it again. Our goal now is how do we break Hmm. that cycle? And the truth is, the cycle can only be broken when we stop the nuclear program altogether.
4: So Axelrod started saying, "I can't let you go without asking this question: What do you think the president? How do you think the president's use of social media has influenced international relations?" And there was sort of like a collective laugh from the audience. Nikki Haley laughed as well, and sort of mentioned that um, Trump's tweets make her job quote interesting. And that whenever she wakes up, she doesn't know what he's going to tweet about. And one part- one particular example that she mentioned was when he first tweeted Little Rocket Man, referring to Kim Jong-un without her knowledge. And then the president asked her, hey, what do you think about me using Little Rocket Man in After- a speech? Yes, okay. afterward. And she was like, I don't think that'll go over too well because they're a serious crowd. But, you know, like, just think of it like you're in church. Like... Just think of it like you're in church. Yeah, because the UN is a very serious crowd, but when he did end up using the term in a speech to the General Assembly, uh, Nikki Haley said that it really started catching on, so she said that she had heads of state come up to her and start referring to Kim Jong-un as Lil Rocket Man. So she laughed and said, it works. So what was really interesting was that at the start of the event, I saw some people just stand up when she entered and I haven't really seen that at at the IOP before like even when Justin Trudeau came to speak I don't think like a ton of people just like stood up like to like welcome him overall I think there are some moments when like you could sense like snickers go go through the audience so when she was using maybe convoluted logic to justify decisions so when she was talking about the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem and justifying it by saying that Uh, she was simply representing the will of the American people who have told Congress each year that they consider Jerusalem the capital of Israel, there was maybe some tension through the audience.
5: We serve the American people. Congress had overwhelmingly voted to name Jerusalem the capital of Israel and to put our embassy in the capital.
4: There was one moment that also stood out to me in particular was when Axelrod uh, was talking about tensions with Russia and was saying, if, if you've condemned Russia, why can't the president do the same? And this was the only time of the night where Nikki Haley like, visibly needed time to think about her answer. And in the silence, in the time it took her to think, the audience just started clapping. Clapping for Axelrod. Yeah.
0: But right. my, my question for you is you just, and you have consistently made a very strong statement about what the Russians did. Mm-hmm. and and why we can't tolerate it. Why can't the President do that?
5: David, I think through those actions the President has acted, that's a question you'll have to ask him, right? So I'm here talking about...
0: Well, he's not here until next week, so...
5: (laughs) She also
4: um, ended her remarks at the beginning with a little bit of advice, which I think is Pretty relevant, so she decided. Advice for students? Advice for students and just citizens of the world in general. And she said this was something that she learned from Henry Kissinger, who was a former Secretary of State and really influential guy in the world of international relations. She said
5: The advice was simply this put yourself in your adversary's shoes, understand what he or she wants, and use that to guide your negotiations. You don't have to agree with them. Most of the times you won't, but you have to understand where they're coming from. This is a skill that I'm afraid is being lost in America today. Real leadership is bringing people around to your point of view by showing how it is in their best interest to do so. But on many college campuses, as well as in our politics and in our media culture, just the opposite seems to be the goal. News
4: reporter Quinn Kane talked with students after the event to get their reactions.
5: I thought uh, that the, the
1: pre-designed uh, part of her speech was very canned. I thought that it was kind of tone-deaf to the students at the school. It uh, kind of talked down to us a lot, which I thought was pretty gross. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when it came to speaking on like, about the questions that she was asked by David Axelrod, uh, she was poorly spoken and uh, didn't really have much to say, didn't answer the questions. She dodged them, kind of like a
2: snake. It was pretty gross. <laughs> Thank you. I feel that she really provided a candid approach in terms of addressing her style and how it differs from the president and how her aims might differ from the original aims of the United Nations, but how she views America as using the United Nations or rather um, creating a community where real issues are addressed rather than some of the more institutionalized structural issues that the UN has faced Uh in the past. And how do you describe the tone of the event? It was very formal, very candid. I feel that she addressed the issues. um, Some of the questions that were read out by David Axelrod were student-prepared questions, and I feel that she really took into consideration the issues that our generation has, and she tried her best to address them and I feel that she provided substantive answers and of course many questions remain on especially on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict what she did and did not address but I feel that with the time that was given she really provided a great experience for all the students she felt that it was important especially with the recent move of the embassy to Jerusalem um, to consider the US's perspective and how the US has the right to recognize the um, Israel, um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but how that should be separate from the role that the United Nations plays, how it should not be affecting the peace process, but rather, rather the U.S. exercising its own sovereignty.
4: If people wanted to read more about this event, where should they look for your story? So it's on the Chicago Maroon website right
0: now.
6: Sure, I'm Casey. Gee, her hers. I'm in my third and final year at
1: the college and I'm president of RAC. Let's just start off there. Most people probably have heard of what RAC is, but I don't think they actually know what it is. So could you give us a brief understanding of what is RAC?
6: So RAC is a student organization on campus that is an educational group for students to learn more about kink. The acronym actually stands for risk aware consensual kink. And what we try to do is just talk about a kink topic every week make sure that people, you know, understand what it is, discuss what it is, and talk about risks associated with it and how to mitigate those risks.
1: What's Racks like, founding principle, like, why do you guys exist? Why do you think this community needs to exist?
6: Well, I think kink is something that a lot of people are interested in, right? Like, even if you look at response to kink and pop culture, you see, like, a lot of people taking those ideas home and trying to, like, uh, you know, do those things with their partners, but kink can be really risky. That's the founding principle of RAC in general and why people in the kink community use RAC as sort of a philosophy because kink can pose a lot of risks. So I think it's really important to have access to education that makes sure that people understand what those risks are and how to mitigate those risks so that people are engaging with this as safely as is possible. And just so that uh, we can raise awareness so that we can you know help people uh, sort of deconstruct the stigma around it. since I think that is something like you said that people on campus are facing is this like stigma against being into these sorts of like abnormal things. So Rec exists, uh, I think mostly to try and provide that foundational education and to connect people to resources as well as to have that awareness in that community.
1: So say I wanted to come to Rat Club, like what does the format of your meetings look like? Is it like roundtables, instructional, do you guys do different things, different weeks? Like how does that look?
6: So a typical meeting, will cover one topic or maybe like a group of topics, and we'll talk about uh, like what it is, and we're always welcome to discussion on that, like what do you think this is, what constitutes this type of activity, like what does this mean to you, where have you seen it? And we'll talk about you know like how that might play into other dynamics or maybe like what people get out of it and why you might want to pursue that thing, and then we'll also talk about any risks associated with it and how to mitigate those risks. For some types of things, uh, when it's possible and it makes sense, we do demonstrations of some of the like types of play. So we've done demonstrations in the past of uh, like violet wand play, which is using a. Uh, Violet Wand is like an implement that generates electricity and um, can like conduct it and create sparks. So we might demonstrate something like that since it is really hard to understand without seeing (laughs) it. And since uh, it it does pose a higher risk. And so it's really good to have that like hands-on instruction for something like that. Uh, And then we're always welcome to to making it more of a discussion, to uh, having people ask questions or maybe even ask like, oh, how would I use this thing if I wanted to do this? Or maybe like, where do I buy this? And where can I learn more about this?
1: I think most people don't really know what to expect from a community like Rack. Could you give insight into like what the community is like?
6: Pretty much just like, you know, you see people who have really interesting things to contribute in terms of their experience or, uh, you know, like what they want to discuss. And uh, we have uh, you know, typical Chicago debates, like, what does it really mean? <laughs> like, um, that kind of thing. I think uh, it's nice, too, that it is sort of somewhat rotating since yeah. the topic differs each week. You see, like, different people come out for different topics. And so it's nice to kind of have, like, a change of pace but also still see, like, the same familiar faces at different meetings. Uh, with RAC, you have such a broad spectrum. Like, there are people who attend only because they're curious or, you know, maybe their friends are, like, joking about it and push them to go check it out or something like that. So there's people who have, like, no investment at all. It's just uh, something to kind of, like, take up the time or, like, oh, I found out about a thing I didn't know existed. (laughs) Um, And then you've got people who are more in the middle, like, maybe they're interested in a couple of topics, but um, they just sort of go to meetings when they can, and it's, like, uh, a nice, uh, interesting, like, Hobby sort of break from whatever else they're doing. And then you've also got people who attend pretty regularly who are going for the education because they intend to like make use of that in their personal lives and to whom it's very important to make sure that they have access to this kind of education. So I think you can see like a good range and having that range and that diversity at meetings makes for like really good discussion and um, a really good opportunity too for instead of just like me teaching everybody, uh, different people being able to like interact at different levels. And I think having that kind of community and having a community where like involvement is very much optional, but can exist if you want is really nice and gives you like a lot of latitude in terms of how much you put in and how much you get
5: out of the group.
1: the community been like for you?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I found it really welcoming and really supportive for me. It also, it's really helped me clear up like a lot of stigma or even internalized stigma in my own life, as well as just opened up so many doors. Like, you know, going into it as a first year, I didn't really understand that like kink wasn't sexual. It it wasn't something that I even knew. And so even just talking about that and like all the different things that you can do with it was really big for me. Um, Looking at like different types of kink as like, Art or a creative hobby really uh, opened a lot of doors for me and has become something that I'm really passionate about now.
1: Why do you think so many people are taken aback from the idea of rack? besides sex just being stigmatized? Because I think it's fair to say a lot of people are surprised when they hear it. Sometimes there's a negative sentiment around it.
6: Well, I think that um, some of it definitely is that sex is stigmatized. And that people don't separate kink from sex, right? Like, even I, as a first year, didn't know that kink could be something that wasn't sexual or could be demonstrated in sort of like a more, like, laboratory, like, exploration technique demonstration sort of way. And I think that a lot of people don't know that and they maybe think that what we're doing uh, is inherently sexual or maybe too intimate or even too dangerous. I know like we've been at times painted in the media as being uh too risky so I think there's some of that and some of that sort of like fear and then also I think uh i have heard from at least some people before they decided to join RAC or um people who were you know sort of struggling with like their own identity was that they uh were worried like that exploring these kinds of ideas might mean something negative about them or might like lead further than they would want it to
1: i think you touched on it a little bit there but you said a lot of people are maybe just get pushed to go from their friends but i bet i would bet that there's a lot of students out there that have heard about it and are curious but are afraid to go because of the stigma surrounding it or what their friends might think what would you tell those people that are curious on the edge but like afraid
6: i think one of the things i love to stress when i first hear this is that rack is absolutely confidential um And I found this to be true in my time in the group. The members of the group are fantastic about not sharing who else is in the group. Our bylaws actually state that, uh, you know, if you were at a meeting and one member of the group who you'd seen before missed that meeting, you could not tell them who was there or what went on. So we have a really strict confidentiality policy. So like your friends wouldn't even have to know. And then if they did, I think it's a really good opportunity to uh, sort of talk about like why they might think the things they do you know like if they're trying to say negative things in association with this this is a really good opportunity to bring up like well why do you think that like why do you think that's negative or maybe uh oh you think like rack does this thing but meetings actually aren't like that so being able to have an open conversation to kind of address like why there might be stigma or negative connotations is a really good opportunity if that's something that's feasible with you and your friend group. Uh, we do offer a variety of trips as well, since we're always trying to connect people to the larger Chicago community, if they are interested in that, and make sure people are connected to resources if they like. So I know that's one thing that um, people sometimes are a little more shocked about, that we do like lead these trips out into the community, and when we do go into the community, it isn't necessarily like a lab or technique-driven environment. But I think the best way to think of it is uh, that RAC and our trips are really just like an introduction to the community and to what's already there. You we were not like trying to actively get people to go or like recruit them. And we're not necessarily trying to engage in anything in the space. Just show people like what kind of space it is, where it is, maybe teach a little about like etiquette and how to behave in these kind of spaces. That way, if you like, you can explore them for yourself.
0: After you finish up listening to this episode of the Maroon Weekly, check out our sister pod, The Arts Cast, hosted by full-time funky boy Max Miller.
1: Miles, what's coming up this week?
0: Well, on Thursday, Peer Health Exchange is hosting a Love Your Body study break on the Reg A level, complete with photo booths, crafts, and snacks.
1: On Thursday, also, the Institute of Politics is hosting a live public forum featuring the six 2018 Illinois Democratic gubernatorial candidates. The event is currently sold out, but you can find the live stream at politics.uchicago.edu.
0: On Sunday, the South Asian Music Ensemble will be performing an international house, hosting a winter showcase featuring a variety of song repertoires from the Indian subcontinent.
1: This past week, Snapchat was on the receiving end of a demonstration on the power that social media influencers truly have. On Wednesday, Kylie Jenner, one of the largest users on the platform, tweeted out declaring that she was done with the social media app, post its now infamous update. In reaction to the tweet, Snapping stock fell almost four percent, or what equates to almost a billion dollars of lost value for the company. In response, Kylie issued a tweet saying, quote, still love you though, Snap, you my first love. But alas, the damage is already done.
0: That's all we've got for you this week. I'm Miles.
1: I'm Austin. First, I'd like to thank Casey for sitting down to talk to me about Rack.
0: Thank you to LaCia Gang and Grace Haug for covering the Nikki Haley event.
1: Aaron Senden for the amazing music.
0: Ben, Kent, and the entire Logan Cage staff for their equipment.
1: Catherine McDonald for her continued support of this project.
0: And if you liked the last song in this week's podcast, be sure to check out Andrew Dietz, a friend of the podcast, on Bandcamp at dayswinner.bancamp.com. We'll catch you next week at Monday at 9 a.m.